Good evening, everybody. Welcome to my Colin podcast, inventively entitled the Glenn Greenwald podcast. I'm always delighted when I get to say that and recall all the creative energies that went into creating such a um, such a novel and creative title to the show. Uh, as I indicated, I'm trying hard to make sure to do this at least once a week. I spent the last week uh, traveling. I uh, was in Florida traveling with my kids. I had to, uh, not had to, but was able to uh, tape two episodes of Tucker Carlson's daytime show, which is interesting. It gives uh, an opportunity to delve very deeply into topics you don't have, the kind of requirements of having to speak for four minutes between segments or between commercial breaks and therefore can delve a lot more deeply. I really enjoyed both of those episodes. Um, and then had to spend a couple of days because we were near Orlando, um, with my kids doing all of those parks. It was a very dad like experience, but now I'm back home, um, and trying again to make sure that this show has a consistent time and uh, day so that you know when it is and, it's more consistent and predictable. And I actually wasn't planning on doing it tonight on Sunday night. Um, it'll be sometime during the week. The regular time will be, but there were, there was a confluence of stories that I have been uh, dying to analyze and delve deeply into and express myself on and just haven't found the time to write about it. And so thought that I would just jump on to a podcast to kind of expel some of the thoughts I've been having that don't fit well into Twitter or other venues. And as I indicated in the title, there are three seemingly disparate news events that I want to discuss because I actually think they have a really important theme in common. One of which is the genuinely bizarre, genuinely bizarre uh, announcement by the department of Homeland security of all agencies that it intends to create what it is calling a disinformation board to coordinate its efforts to combat disinformation. And I say it's bizarre for so many reasons, which we'll get into, but the announcement itself, as bizarre as it was, was jettisoned, catapulted into a different universe of strangeness by virtue of the person they chose to lead this board. Her name is Nina Yankovic. And if you try to find a caricature or a cartoon of a resistance Twitter freak, you would not be able to find anyone who exceeds her in that category. She's like a walking... Uh, cartoon for what resistance derangement is. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what this really dystopian effort on the part of the U.S. security state to declare and decree what isn't isn't disinformation and to combat it by uh, a board to be run by this this bizarre and 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 ridiculous individual, um, what I think is actually behind it and why I think it matters in a way that is not necessarily obvious. And then I also want to delve into what I think is definitely the related ongoing panic 
and indignation on the part of the political and media class over the prospect that Elon Musk looks likely to very shortly be the sole owner of what will be the private company called Twitter. And needless to say, and I've talked about this before uh, on this show, I believe on the last episode, what's so striking about it is that there's nothing Elon Musk is planning to do, at least insofar as his public statements are concerned, with Twitter that are at all controversial or different. He's talking about things like uh, making the algorithms um, open and public on Twitter. Um, He's talking about things like uh, installing an edit button, Um, things like uh, tweaking some of the ways in which Twitter functions so that um, there's more transparent things that um, things that really are, are not controversial at all. And the only controversial, oh, and I think he, he just announced in the last 48 hours that he wants to put encryption on direct messages in order to make them less likely to, um, less likely, to, uh, less likely to be the subject of hacking or things. So nothing controversial except for one thing. What is that one thing? He's saying he wants to loosen the censorship regime that has been imposed on every major social media platform in the West by rejuvenating the ethos of free speech so that the range of political opinions permitted to be expressed over Twitter is expanded and the regime of repression and idea restraint is constricted. That's it. That's the only pledge he's making that is remotely controversial, and that alone has led to this extreme kind of uh, derangement on the part of all sorts of power centers that uh, I want to spend some time analyzing in light of these new these new developments. And then third uh, event I want to discuss uh, is this uh, very self-promoted New York Times three-part, what they're calling investigation into the cable news host, Tucker Carlson. They compiled an extremely large team of journalists, much larger than, say, they ever compiled to investigate Joe Biden's financial dealings in Ukraine or China prior to the war, much larger than any of the ongoing reasons that the Biden presidency seems to be in free fall in terms of losing the support, even of groups on which Democrats have traditionally relied. They really not only assembled this gigantic team of reporters, but devoted enormous numbers of hours and resources to watching and creating graphs detailing every one of his shows, not in order to expose anything people didn't already know. They didn't uncover any corruption or any emails that contained racist ideas. Really, the only point of the expose, as they're amusingly uh, hyping it as, was to just say that Tucker Carlson is a racist and a white nationalist over and over and over, saying that it's the most racist show ever to appear on television. Basically, just to call him a racist. That's the only point of 
this New York Times expose. And I think there's a lot of interesting elements in that decision about the New York Times, not only to do it, but how to promote it, how to talk about it, how to sell it. Um, that again, I think have a lot of common themes with the first two topics. So before I delve into that and, and, uh, kind of try to unravel what I think is this common thread uniting these, uh, just logistically for those of you who are new, and I hope, uh, some of you are new, um, because this platform is a really exciting new way to enable journalists to be able to speak with. Uh, a new audience, a different audience, their readership, um, to speak with people with whom they otherwise couldn't reach, but also to do so in a much more interactive way. Um, it is. It was for a while available only on iPhones, and now is available on Androids as well. Um, and also uh, episodes uh, that you don't get to participate in or listen to live go on uh, the website as well. So it's universally available in many different ways, and it's growing rapidly as a result. And my favorite feature of it is the interactivity. If you have a question or a comment uh, or just something you want to raise, you can click the raised hand feature at the bottom of your phone. Uh, You'll automatically be placed into the queue uh, in the order in which you do that. And then when I'm done speaking, and I will try and make that uh, as soon as possible because there's already 16 or 18 people now in the queue waiting to speak. I'll try and get to as many people as possible. I'll begin to take callers um, and we can have, uh, interactive discussion as well. So let me just, I don't, I don't want to delve too deeply into each of these events separately in, in part because I have been speaking about them in, in different venues, um, but also because they each merit their own show. And so if I do that, uh, I'll eat up most of the time and, and we won't have a, a lot of time left for uh, the Q&A. So let me just kind of walk through a few of my uh, perceptions about these events and, and and really try and highlight for you what I think they have in common, why they're, they're so revealing in the aggregate. First of all, the idea of placing a disinformation board inside any government agency is incredibly chilling. The last thing you want, and it's not really a novel observation, kind of fundamental to the fabric of American political life is the government should not be dictating what is true and what is false for any purposes. Obviously, the government has the ability to um, express itself like anybody else. The government speaks through press secretaries and through official spokespeople and has the right to say what its version of the truth is. But It has zero power, or at least ought to have zero power, to issue binding decrees in any sort of official way about truth and falsity. The government is the last entity you want doing that. One of the independent journalists who most influenced me, I.F. Stone, wrote a book and had as his motto in the journalism that he did, the motto, All Governments Lie, which is seemingly uncontroversial. Governments lie by nature. They lie naturally and instinctively and systematically. And that's the reason you need checks on on government. That's what a free press is for. It's what the division and distribution of power between the branches is designed to do is to check governments because they so often lie and are inclined to abuse their power without accountability. And so anytime the government stakes a claim to the right 
to decree what is true and false, it does, it is redolent of the warning that Orwell issued in, in 1984 when he described what the Ministry of Truth is. That's exactly, it's a very simple warning. It's the warning of the government assuming the right to dictate to the population what is it isn't true. And the reason it's dangerous is because the government will do it not out of fealty to the truth, but in order to advance its own interests and its own power. So for the government to do something like this at all is something that is remarkably disturbing. It's obviously a, a significant event. But for them to do it through the Department of Homeland Security of all agencies makes it all the more disturbing. Some of you may not remember or know the history of the Department of Homeland Security. It was a brand new government bureaucracy founded in 2002, obviously in the climate of the 9-11 attack and the war on terror. It was um, considered pretty controversial, the idea that there would be some brand new agency created that secure what was called the homeland. That word is never was never a phrase that we used in the United States to talk about our own government. Um, and so it was a controversial um, uh, creation even then, especially because the question arose, what is it intended to do that other security agencies aren't already doing? The CIA the FBI, the U.S. security state has always, the NSA, has always been sprawling and, and enormous. And so why did you need this brand new agency, the purpose of which was to protect our own country domestically, meaning the homeland? It was clearly an agency designed to extend the security state domestically at the time when the country was at the highest level of fear due to the 9-11 attack. And it is a domestic agency by its nature. It's designed, as its title says, to protect the homeland. It would be one thing if the Pentagon or the CIA, which are directed outward, at least in theory, were engaged in some sort of efforts to combat foreign disinformation. Obviously, that is something that those agencies claim to do. But to put it in the Department of Homeland Security, which is directed inward, designed to protect our own country makes it even more dangerous because by its nature, in order to do what the, the mission of the Homeland Department of Homeland Security is, you have to examine what people are saying domestically, or at least to the extent that it affects domestic security. And as a result, um, examine what people are saying inside the United States about the United States. In other words, having the government have a program designed to decree what is and isn't disinformation for the United States. So I think, again, the reason why people reacted so strongly to it is because it wasn't just the government inventing a disinformation panel, but putting it in an agency that was intended to be domestic. And then at the same time, appointing as the director, the executive director, this woman named Nina Yankovic, who, if you look at her pronouncements and you look at her activism, 
she's nothing, nothing other than a highly politicized Democratic Party activist, the kind of person who was tweeting still with her to express her support for Hillary Clinton. She has spread and been at the center of virtually every Democratic Party disinformation campaign over the last six years, including what I consider the most egregious, which is the lie that emanated from the intelligence community two or three weeks before the 2020 election, which asserted falsely that the emails from Hunter Biden's laptop reflecting incriminating information about Joe Biden's business activities in Ukraine and China were Russian disinformation. She wrote a book about the abuse that women in professional life experience online. She's uh, She attacked my, me once um, with using the word disgusting because they criticized Taylor Lorenz and tie that into Tucker Carlson. Just every resistance theme, every Democratic Party motif, every disinformation campaign that has emanated from the U.S. security state in the name of liberal politics, she has been there endorsing. And that's what's so amazing about it is the... Uh, idea that she's some sort of, a, in, 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 in the words of the Secretary of Homeland Security who went on CNN today, Alejandro Mayorkas, that she's some kind of world-renowned disinformation expert, is laughable. What does that even mean to be a world? How do you become a world-renowned disinformation expert? Is, is there an academic program where you go and study how to combat disinformation in some in some sort of politically neutral way? Is there like a licensing agency that certifies you met the requirements to be... What does that mean to be a disinformation expert at all, let alone to say that she is not only world-renowned, someone who nobody had ever heard of before, before she got put into this position running the disinformation campaign inside Homeland Security, but somebody who is just as ideological and politicized of an activist as it gets. And, you know, ultimately what I find, I think, so bothersome about this more than anything else, all the other uh, reasons I've outlined as to why one would find it so bothersome is because the, the, the sector of society that is creating this board and defending it and justifying it is the most prolific source of disinformation that we have in in the West, the U.S. security state. For the last five or six years, they've been drowning American politics in all sorts of false and deceitful propaganda. Russiagate and its maximalist absurdities emanated from the intelligence community. The idea that Donald Trump had been briefed on something that didn't exist, which was a campaign on the part of Russia to put bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan, and he ignored that, emanated from the same U.S. security state. The idea that the Hunter Biden emails were Russian disinformation rather than what they were, completely authentic and easily verifiable at the time, emanated from the U.S. national security, the U.S. security state over and over and over again. These are trained liars. These are disinformation agents. The U.S. security state doesn't exist to combat disinformation, it exists to disseminate disinformation. And so I think it's very important to ask 
what is the real purpose of this? Why is there a board suddenly being created three weeks after both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama gave very orchestrated speeches lamenting the menace of disinformation online and inveighing again in favor of the need to do more than social media companies are doing. And then suddenly this Homeland Security Disinformation Board gets created in this very kind of casual way. What is the real purpose of it? And I think one of the important things to note about this is that it's not just this board that came out of nowhere. There's an entire industry now, very well-funded industry of self-proclaimed experts whose expertise is as elusive as Mina Yankovic's, who claim to be experts in fighting disinformation. They work for these benign-sounding, very vague and neutral named groups like the Center to Combat Radicalism or the European group to uh, maintain democratic values. You know, just these very inoffensive-sounding names. And the more you dig into them, the more you realize that they're all funded by the same funding sources. They're funded by very politically driven billionaires like George Soros and Pierre Omidyar. I know you're not supposed to talk about George Soros' funding because it automatically makes it a conspiracy theory. And yet, in reality, if you look at the funding of these groups, they're so often funded by him or by Pierre Omidyar, whose politics are very Atlanticist, very anti-Trump, very pro-democratic party, intending to preserve the neoliberal order. They're also often funded by well, and big tech monopolies who want to have this imprimatur of what is disinformation and what isn't. So the idea that there's that you can determine what is and isn't disinformation in some neutral political way, that it's nothing more than this kind of scholarly expertise that floats above the political fray is the lie on which the entire industry is based. If there's some neutral, objective way to determine what isn't isn't disinformation, as opposed to a, simply an ideological weapon to call whatever your political adversaries are saying disinformation in order to discredit it. That's all it is. It's a very banal political weapon. And yet, there's so much money now being poured into this ostensible cause of fighting disinformation and the creation of this government body is obviously a critical effort in order to do that. And so the question has to be examined, which is why, why is there now this industry calling itself experts in fighting disinformation? Why is the government doing this? And I think the answer is that obviously one of the most important weapons that the Western neoliberal order has constructed and acquired in which it wields is the increasingly potent ability to censor the flow of information on the internet, to delete and ban and unperson anybody that they want, which has two related effects. One is to ensure that no who questions their pieties or challenges their orthodoxies or who becomes an effective dissident can be heard, have a platform. The standard reason why censorship is craved by every tyrant and despot everywhere. When you can silence people who oppose you or who challenge you or who doubt 
or question or investigate or dispute what you're saying that obviously vests you with enormous power. So that's one reason why disinformation and the need to censor have become so important is because it gives people the standard power that always get vests in, in, in censors. But the second reason is, and it's related but different, is that it enables the construction of a closed propaganda system. It isn't just that if you eliminate and silence your adversaries, it means that people who oppose you can no longer be heard. It also means that it becomes almost impossible for anyone to doubt the veracity of your pronouncements. You know, people who don't work in politics or journalism, they don't have a lot of time to spend digging into the truth of government claims. They rely on other people, on journalists, on activists, on people they trust who have the time whose work is to do that. So if you're if you have the power to silence and exclude from the main channels of, of, of information dissemination anyone who questions or challenges what you say, you not only get to silence your enemies, but you also get to persuade huge numbers of people of things that aren't true simply because there's really nobody effective questioning or challenging what it is you're saying. And therefore, it's very easy to disseminate even outright lies and convince millions of people to believe you. That is an immense power. There's barely a power more potent than that. And if you don't think that power centers think constantly about how to preserve their own power, I would suggest that you don't have a very extensive or deep understanding of how power functions. That's all power centers think about is how to preserve their own power, which in turn is about how to neutralize those who might challenge the status quo, the prevailing ruling order. And this power of censorship has become one of the most important, if not the most important weapons they have, which is why I think that the mere prospect that Elon Musk might in some minimal or mild or moderate way restore free speech to one of those platforms is causing such indignation and horror and such a meltdown precisely because it threatens what is their most powerful weapon. So going back to that first part, the first story, which is the Homeland Security Disinformation Board, if you're going to censor large numbers of people as has as has been happening and it's happened in the name first of Russia gate then it ha- you know the need to s- protect Americans from the menace of Russian disinformation and then it happened in the name of January 6th when they actually removed the sitting president of the United States from the most important internet platforms an act that to this very day I don't think we fully appreciated the severity of in the name of January 6th, they took a competitor to Twitter, which had been offering free speech called Parler. And on the day that it became the most popular and downloaded app on both the Google and Apple Play Stores, Google and Apple United to remove it from its Play Store, which basically destroyed its viability. And then Amazon removed it from the internet, which destroyed it even further. All justified again in the name of January 6th. That was immediately followed by the COVID pandemic where censorship reached all new heights, people who questioned any of the orthodoxy emanating from the public health establishment 
Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization on the issue of the efficacy of masks, on the wisdom of lockdowns and quarantines, on school closures, most importantly, on the origins of the virus. Anyone who doubted that it was actually zoonotic and suggested that it might have come from a lab, all those people got banned and silenced, had their content deleted. It was simply prohibited to do any of that. So you had Russiagate, January 6th, and COVID, all of which have conditioned people with increasing levels of severity to accept and crave a censorship regime. And now on top of that, you have this war between Russia and Iraq, uh, Russia and, and Ukraine as a result of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine on February 24th, which has escalated the censorship regime even further. And so you have this escalating series of crises that keep justifying the need for censorship more and more, conditioning people in the West to believe that it's for their own good. But in order to do that, you have to provide some justification for it. We're all indoctrinated with the idea since childhood that only the bad countries censor. The word censorship is, 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 is inherently negative in our culture. We, we repel from, we recoil from that. We find it repellent. Nobody ever is going to stand up and say, I believe in censorship. I don't believe in free speech. No one's ever going to explicitly say that. So in order to justify this system of censorship, you need to, A, claim that it's something else besides censorship, and B, more importantly, provide a, a, a reason for it, a reason why it's justified. And that's where you see all these euphemisms like content moderation and equitable speech, the idea that free speech in its traditional sense drowns out marginalized voices, censorship is needed to promote marginalized people from being able to, uh, to, to, to have the power to speak. All these euphemisms, because nobody wants to say, I believe in censorship, they'd rather say, I believe in content moderation. Just like during the war on terror, no one ever wanted to say, I, I support torture. So they created the euphemism of enhanced interrogation techniques and people got to say that's what I support that's standard government propaganda you create euphemisms to mask the thing that you're actually supporting but I think people know that it's it's still censorship I mean you just we know what censorship is when we see it so if if the rule is you can't express certain opinions you can't question the origins of the COVID uh, virus or you can't uh, you, that you can say the 2016 election was stolen. You can say the 2000 election was stolen. You can say the 2004 election was stolen, but you can't say that the 2020 election was stolen. People recognize that as censorship, no matter what you call it. And so people know it's censorship. So you have to provide some kind of justification, some kind of convincing rationale for why it's happening. You know, I, I remember having the experience, I'm sure a lot of you do too, in childhood where you read about tyrannies, you read about despots and repressive regimes. And you kind of wonder, as you read about it, that dissidents were imprisoned, certain books were banned, ideas were not allowed. Why did those people accept it? And in a lot of cases, they didn't just accept it. They were grateful for it. They believed in it. And even now you find, obviously, 
you see huge numbers of people believing in censorship. You don't need to use anecdote. You can use polling data. There's a 2021 Pew poll that I often cite that asked Americans two questions. Do you support big tech censoring the internet in the name of combating disinformation? And do you support the government restricting the internet in the name of supporting information? And Democrats who are the majority party in Washington, they they control both houses of Congress and the White House and the entire executive branch, overwhelmingly want both big tech and the government to restrict and limit the internet in the name of fighting disinformation. So you see how easy it is to get populations to support censorship, even ones that have been inculcated from childhood, that censorship is the hallmark of a corrupt and tyrannical government. And so then the question becomes, how do you get them to justify that? The justification that used to be used by people who wanted to to censor was that there's a category of speech which is so dangerous and so toxic, so bigoted, whatever negative connotation you wanted to apply to it, that it isn't really free speech. It's something else. It's hate speech. And therefore, it can be restricted because it's not really speech. It's a different category. That's a longstanding argument. I think, by and large, that argument is lost. People understand the First Amendment protects even so-called hate speech. What's hate speech varies from one person to another. Some people think that uh, if you question whether uh, people who are female uh, or male and athletes who are male until about seven seconds ago should be able to compete against lifelong females who lived lifelong and, and were born into a biological uh, female body. That's hate, hate speech. Other people think that if you criticize Israel, that's anti-Semitism and that's hate speech. Other people think that if you uh, want to advocate for more restrictive immigration policy, something the left used to always do on the grounds that unlimited immigration drove down wages and hurt American workers, but now is deemed inherently racist. People think that's hate speech. I think people have seen the elasticity of this term and don't really believe censorship is permissible by invoking that rationale. Some do, but not enough. And so the predominant rationale has now become that censorship is needed because there's so much disinformation. I'm not really sure where this new word came from. It's kind of like fake news. It seems to me to describe something that has existed forever, which is people making assertions or making claims that are unsupported by the evidence or negated by the evidence. We used to call it, I don't know, lying or deceit or propaganda. Now we have a new word for it called disinformation. And so if you can convince people that there's this new menace that has emerged from this new technology of the internet and social media, and that is used by our enemies and our adversaries and by dangerous political movements inside the United States, and it's called disinformation, and censorship has to control disinformation because disinformation isn't free speech, it's deliberate lying that kills people, 
that is something that, especially with the new generation of people hearing these ideas and these debates for the first time, is a very persuasive argument for why censorship is necessary. Oh, we're not censoring people from criticizing the government. You still are allowed to dissent. The one thing you can't do is engage in disinformation. You can't question the vaccine because that kills people. You can't question the efficacy of masks because that kills people. You can't suggest that uh, the United States played any role in provoking the Russian invasion of Ukraine or even that it's not doing enough to try and solve it diplomatically or instead is trying to fuel it because that can get people killed. This term disinformation has become the predominant reason why censorship is needed, why censorship is justified. That Pew poll proves that. It specifically asks, do you believe the government and by big tax should censor the internet in the name of combating disinformation? It didn't ask for hate speech. It asked for disinformation. And that's when 75% of Democrats, three out of four, said yes for big tech and something like 66%, two out of three, said yes that the government should do it. That's how important this word disinformation has become. If you can label something disinformation, you can convince huge numbers of people, potentially a majority, certainly a majority in the West, that it's not really the kind of legitimate political opinion that deserves protection to the country. It's something that needs to be banned, barred, and prohibited. And so the ability to label something disinformation is an incredibly powerful weapon. If you go back and look at how the reporting on the Hunter Biden emails was banned by Twitter and Facebook two or three weeks before the election. Twitter just outright banned any linking to any reporting on, on those documents. They locked the New York Post, the, the, the news outlet that broke the story, out of their Twitter account for two weeks, did not permit them to post any of their reporting on Twitter. Facebook announced through a lifelong Democratic Party operative named Andy Stone, who now is a Facebook spokesman, who previously worked for the Democratic Congressional Committee, for Nancy Pelosi, for a variety of Democratic politicians, that they were going to algorithmically suppress the story pending a fact check that never came. The fact check never came, of course, because the documents are real. They didn't just out of the blue announce that they were censoring it. They needed some official ruling. That, in, that entitled them, that, that enabled them to justify censoring the story. And that official ruling came from this, this ad hoc group of former intelligence officials, 50 former intelligence officials, including former CIA director under President Obama, John Brennan, and former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, the entire gang who have spent their entire careers lying. The reason why they all signed that letter pronouncing the Hunter Biden emails to be Russian disinformation, or they couldn't even say that it was. They had to admit they had no evidence for it. But they reasoned, what they said was, based on our decades of experience, it has all the hallmarks of Soviet tradecraft. The reason they did that was because media outlets and big tech needed some quasi-official decree about why this material should be censored. It, It would have been too transparent had Twitter and Facebook just said, we're not allowing reporting that reflects negatively on Joe Biden, that might help Donald Trump win the election. They needed some kind of some kind of decree. And that's what those intelligence officials provided. 
And that's what those groups that I described earlier, those those benign sounding groups that are always funded by the same small handful of left liberal billionaires and NGOs and who work with Facebook and, and Google and, and often with Western intelligence agencies like the Atlantic Council, entities like this who constantly claim disinformation, you know, what is disinformation? That's what their function is, too, is to, to enable media outlets or tech companies to say, well, we're censoring this. Why are you censoring this? Because this neutral group over there called the Atlantic Council or called the, the group that is the center to combat uh, radicalism has labeled this disinformation. This isn't us. This isn't us, Facebook and Google, saying this. This is them over there, the disinformation experts. That's why it's so important to pretend that there are people who have expertise that you don't have in recognizing disinformation as though it's like neurology or, you know, physics, something you have to study for years and years and get certified in. Like it's a special form of knowledge that only certain types of people get to claim they can spot and identify and understand. That's what they're trying to do is to suggest that this is some kind of apolitical science, and there are these experts now in identifying disinformation because they need some quasi-official ruling to justify the censorship they want to do. That's what those groups are for. But they're not really good enough because people don't know those groups. They don't know what these groups are. They help, but they don't know. And I think people are starting to grow very suspicious of these former intelligence officials constantly issuing proclamations. But if you can officialize these decrees, if now the Department of Homeland Security is in the business of slapping labels on things they dislike as disinformation, what you're going to see is every article from the New York Times and the Washington Post and every segment from NBC News and CNN that wants to discredit certain opinions or views or arguments or theories that the government has labeled disinformation, asserting definitively that this is disinformation. Why? Because this board led by a world-renowned disinformation expert inside the Department of Homeland Security has said that it's disinformation and that's the end of the story, which means no good, decent, rational, patriotic citizen believes it. And any tech platform or media outlet that wants to censor it is justified in doing so because now there's an official ruling that this is false. That's what this is for. That's what this is about. And obviously, when you're going to do that with that motive, what you need and what you want is to find the most malleable, politicized, partisan, ideologically driven person you can possibly find to ensure that disinformation basically means any ideas or arguments or investigations or conclusions that subvert or undermine your political interests. And they found the perfect person from that perspective to do so. The fact that she's such a joke, such a cartoon, such a caricature is why she was chosen. They know she's, she'll have no compunction about labeling anything that questions the Democratic Party and its war policies and its foreign policy and its economic policy as disinformation. She's already proven that that's what she does. And they also know that their disinformation, more importantly, maybe more importantly, but definitely as importantly, will be shielded from that designation. 
will be, will never get the, obviously she's never going to say that when intelligence officials come out and say the Hunter Biden emails are Russian disinformation, she's never going to say that that's disinformation, even though it is, because she's a partisan loyalist hack. That's why she's in that position. So that's the purpose of this. It's to officialize and formalize rulings of disinformation, at least to justify censorship, if not to go further. There are laws pending and and in some cases have passed in Western Europe and places like Canada and Australia that, that want to criminalize the dissemination of disinformation and fake news. So you could easily see this being much more pernicious than the already pernicious act of justifying censorship. Now, why is it so important to them at this moment to fortify this regime of censorship? And if you have any doubts about that, look at how they're reacting to Elon Musk, who has done nothing more but say, you know what? I kind of believe in free speech and like the virtues of it. You know, the value that's enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States that has always been invoked by American advocates of American greatness and American exceptionalism is a reason why we're a better country than those other countries. Just yesterday at that sleazy White House Versailles-like party where so-called journalists party and giggle and, and, and drink with CIA and FBI and uh, Homeland Security operatives and rip off this fake mask of their adversarial when in fact they're all part of the same group. They, at that very event, Trevor Noah, who was the host, paid tribute to the importance of a free press and the ability of, of, of Americans, unlike other people, to be able to speak freely. You get to criticize the president right to his face and you don't get arrested. So this is something that we are always being told that is what distinguishes us from everybody else. And clearly this is an effort, clearly this is an effort to find a way to remove from the internet where it now lives and thrives, this regime of censorship and start to apply it in other ways. And the fact that Homeland Security is now officially in the business of declaring what is and isn't disinformation shows you how serious they are about that. Now, I just want to quickly apply it to this last story about what the New York Times did to Tucker Carlson. In some way, I really don't think this is a big deal. I was, as I said, I was in Florida um, in the place where Tucker records his both nighttime show and the daytime show that is on Fox streaming. And I I recorded uh, two days with him and had an opportunity to spend a lot of time talking to him. And he knew the story was coming. He did not care that it was coming. There's been plenty of stories like this from the New York Times and almost everybody else. The only purpose of which is to call Tucker Carlson a racist. But in this case... They really put the heart into it. They really gave it the hard effort. A three-part series, like all kinds of graphs. You know, liberals really believe now that if they take their opinions about the world and find a way to put it into a graph, that it means they've proven it empirically. So they're all kind of graphs and flashing things and you know, all designed to make it seem like it was something more than just some standard smear piece to call a conservative a, ra- a racist, which was all it was. 
but they really tried hard to elevate it into something else. Why? Why did they need to do that? Why, why are they so interested in that? I think it all stems from the same insecurity that they have about the fact that they're losing that grip on the flow of information that they've held in their hands for so long. I think the fact that CNN, one of the richest and most powerful corporations for decades, put hundreds of millions of dollars into a new streaming service, hired away people like Chris Wallace and tried to hire Rachel Maddow and give them 20 and $30 million a year contracts, put hundreds of millions of dollars into promoting it only to watch it fail after 22 days because no one fucking cared. No one wanted to watch that shit. People who have already made clear they have no interest in watching CNN even when it's free. When I tell you that their ratings are humiliating, I'm understating the case. Mid-sized YouTubers in their basement have bigger audiences than primetime CNN shows. Nobody is interested in what CNN has to say. Nobody. And the hubris of thinking that they could take these same people who no one's interested in now and make people pay to watch them is off the charts in terms of its delusion, uh, its delusional break with reality. But McKinsey convinced them that it would work and it was such a pathetic failure. Less, fewer than 10,000 people were watching it at any time. When I go live on Jimmy Dore's YouTube show, which is literally in his garage, he's a comic who's high on pot every time he goes on the air, there are more than 10,000 people watching every single time I'm on that show. Same with other YouTubers. They couldn't even get that with all that re- those resources. They know that no one wants to watch a stab- pro-establishment trite. People upholding the neoliberal order. People talking about how great Joe Biden is, calling everybody racist and fascist over and over. They did the same thing to Joe Rogan, you'll recall, just two months ago. There was a full-on effort to get him off Spotify, and they failed. Why? Because they can't control Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's off script. He dissents from and disseminates heterodox views and they can't control him and he's infinitely more popular than they are. So all they know how to do is try and silence people and destroy them. And that was what that was about. And that's what this Tucker Carlson thing is about as well. His audience continues to grow. He's by far the most popular and influential daily uh, host on television who talks about the news every day. So they had to destroy him or try and destroy him for the same reason that they're so upset that Elon Musk might bring back some vestige of free speech to Twitter, the same reason why they want to officialize and formalize Homeland Security. It's all a fear of losing the ability to control what you can say and think, and all a fear of losing their ability to control the sources of information that millions of people get. That's the common thread that ties us all together. And the good news in all of this is that they are losing they are losing. I'm, I don't think that's undue optimism. When they tried to destroy Joe Rogan, they not only lost, he's still on Spotify. Remember all those artists threatened to leave Spotify unless they kicked them off, all that. None of that mattered. Still their number one most listened to host. He still has the faith and trust of millions of young people. In fact, his subscriber base grew radically after they did that. The Washington Post has recently tried to destroy the life of the woman behind the incredibly influential lives of TikTok. 
Twitter account, and I say incredibly influential, just objectively, there are certain things she does that I'm not comfortable with and I don't support, but you cannot deny the value she's provided to the discourse and the influence that she has uh, wielded. They tried to destroy her by unmasking her, thinking she would crawl away out of fear, and instead her Twitter following has almost doubled, if not doubled, from 600,000 to more than a million. And, you know, Tucker's response to the New York Times three-part, 10,000-word series promoted on the front page of their website and their newspaper was what it should have been, which is to hold it up and laugh. Because they are losing power and influence. And they know that. They know that. They're desperate about it. And all of these things, destroying and silencing their critics and adversaries, smearing them as racist and fascist, trying to keep control over the most important internet platforms with censorship power, and now trying to formalize the ability to label your views and other views they dislike as official disinformation that could justify not only censorship, but eventually legal action against it all stems from this desperation. It's all part of the same power-hungry quest for them to protect their own ideological sector from what they know is increasing levels of contempt and hatred. Joe Biden joked about it last night when he stood up and said, I'm so glad to be speaking to the only group of people in America who have lower approval ratings than I do, meaning the corporate press. They know how hated they are. And they can't think of any solution to fix that other than force, which is what censorship is, which is what destruction of people's character is. It's the only thing they can try and find. But I think that they're going to be in for a very rude awakening. The part of the media that is collapsing is theirs. The part that's growing is the part that's independent and provides free speech. Places like Joe Rogan, like Rumble, like Substack, like this app. I think Elon Musk started off ambivalent about his motives, but has become more and more emboldened by seeing the attacks that his free speech promises are generating. As you said, the antibody reaction shows how important that is. I think he's made enough of a kind of flamboyant display of his intentions that whether he wants to or not, he's kind of now bound just by the need to protect his own legacy to at least follow through in some way. So I think the momentum has clearly shifted. And the more it does, the more you're going to see increasingly desperate acts like the three things that I uh, invited you here to talk about. So with that, um, I'm going to try and take as many people as possible. There are already 25 people um, in the queue, which is a lot. So I probably won't get to all of you, but I will try and get to as many of you as possible. And uh, just out of consideration for the people who are waiting, when I call you, just go ahead and unmute yourself. And I don't want you to have to do sound bites, but just try and keep it as kind of concise as, as you possibly can. And I will do the same. All right. The first person up um, is... I don't know. I'm having trouble seeing the name, actually. I don't see the name for some reason. Amir. Amir. Go ahead, Amir. Hi, Glenn. Um, So I'll be quick. Um, First of all, um, I thought that, you know, like it's our job to keep the government in check, you know, like not the other way around. That's just a comment. So that's kind of scary. But I have a question or it's a two question. One, you say that, you know, we're winning supposedly. But how can you how can you 
merge that with the fact that 75% of the population wants it and 66% or whatever, all the numbers. Of Democrats, of Democrats. Okay, well, I mean, it's still a significant number in the population. I know I'm surrounded by, I mean, Idiocracy was an intelligent movie compared to some of the opinions I have around me. But so that's my one, uh, you know, the, the big question is like how you put that together. But the other question is about the definition of malinformation. Like you talked about disinformation and misinformation, but if you read the new um, document from the Homeland Security, it seems like I heard different people talk about it, that it's almost like telling the truth if it's in opposition to the government's take or, you know, position, then you are at risk of being labeled terrorists. Is that your read on it? You're also an attorney. And I just would like to know your take on it. And that's it. Thanks. And thanks yeah, for so everything those, you those do. Are, yeah, thank you. Those are two great questions. Um, so on the first one, so I, I don't want to overstate my optimism. When I say I'm optimistic, I don't mean I think the battle has been won. I think these are, you know, incredibly powerful entities. Um, when you're talking about corporate media, you're even the biggest most well-financed, most well-known media corporations on the planet that reach millions and millions of people in all kinds of different ways. Obviously, when you're talking about the United States government, it is still the most, the richest and most powerful government on the planet. When you're talking about the Democratic Party and, for that matter, the establishment wing of the Republican Party, let's not let them off the hook either. They're on board with a lot of this. Um, You know, you're talking about... um, as I said, a party that currently controls both houses of Congress and the White House. And with that comes a great deal of power. I think we see with Russia and Ukraine, I've gone over this before, so I won't you know, go into specifics, the ability to just implant a consensus out of nothing. And I don't just mean the view that Russia was wrong to invade Ukraine, which is an easy argument to make. I mean, everything that follows with it about what the U.S. role ought to be and about how to understand the conflict and everything else just locks up consensus that immediately emerged and the serious censorship that has taken place on these platforms that Elon Musk is vowing to undo to some extent, those are very formidable forces with which have amassed a lot of power. And as you correctly point out, the poll I cited undercuts that optimism. So does their ability to have, you know, imposed a blackout on lots of debate around COVID um, so when I say I'm optimistic, all I mean is the tools of their own destruction in some way are being created by them. They really, I think, have overplayed their hand. If you look at the contempt in which they're held by the broader population, that is what has opened up other spaces that are alternative for people to migrate to. And it's why, you know, I said this earlier today, that even 10 years ago, let alone 30 or 40 and the New York Times came after you the way they just did Carlson with a three-part series designed to do nothing but depict you as kind of a, you know, evil person, a racist, a white nationalist, a fascist, you would be done. I and mean, that would be the end of it. You know, there would be no coming back from that. And now, you know, I think the only people who are cheering it are people who already are listening to the New York Times or liberals. And I don't think there's a single viewer of Tucker Carlson or someone who might watch Tucker Carlson who's open-minded about it, who was going to have their mind changed in any way because they don't trust the New York Times and they don't trust the discourse that they use in order to kind of do these things. Um, so my optimism is really based about that, based on that. 
You know, I, I the, the point you raised is actually in the second part of your question and a really important one. I wish they had raised it. Remember that this Homeland Security kind of forage into declaring disinformation is being done at, at a time when the Department of Homeland Security has been warning for two and three years that the greatest threats to the homeland come not from foreign terrorist groups or Russia or China, but from domestic extremists, which they define very broadly. And obviously one of the ways in which the U.S. government claims that people are extremist or potentially terrorist is their use of disinformation. They're trying to not just stigmatize it, but criminalize it. And so that's why I say that in the first instance, obviously it's an attempt to justify and officialize the ability to censor, but I think it has much further reaching consequences than that in terms of their ability to potentially impose legal or criminal liability on those assessed to be spreading it. Um, all right, let me take the next caller, which is, uh, is it DK? Um, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, Glenn, it's Don. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate Hey, Don, how are you? Uh, doing well. Um, I think it speaks about places like the New York Times and all these mainstream publications that are losing great um, reporters and going to Substack. Uh, that being said, do you have any uh, mind, and then two questions here, of pulling together some of the great independent journalists like Taibi, Barry Weiss, and forming a new sort of an intercept-type publication that can maybe become a little more mainstream for people that don't know about a substack? And then part two, um, as far as the solution to all this, do you see anything happening with maybe like an Andrew Yang's forward party? I know Michael Schellenberger's challenging Gavin Newsom as an independent for the governor race in California. Do you see that going anywhere? And do you think that has a legitimate shot of upending this two-party system? So, uh, you know, as far as your first question is concerned, it's funny. Before I left The Intercept, um, and that happened very quickly, you know, basically they decided they were not going to publish my article analyzing and reporting on the Biden emails, and I quit within 24 hours with no plan. But before that, you know, my dissatisfaction was growing for reasons I've articulated before. And we were working on efforts to kind of start over and create like an intercept, but that would actually fulfill its function that we set out to fulfill at the founding that went very off track. Uh, that was going to be more kind of heterodox in its ideology and I think what people, what ended up happening is that the ecosystem had shifted so dramatically that this sector of media that is, is independent is growing so much that it was almost too lucrative and too successful to lure people away from it. You know, how do you go to Matt Taibbi or Barry Weiss or whoever um, and say, you know, let alone Joe Rogan or anyone like that and say, hey, I know you're you know, in a situation that fulfills your wildest dreams, you're completely free to say what you want. You're making, you know, so much money that you can hire, you know, your own editors and your own freelancers and kind of have a mini media outlet. Now I want you to come work within an organization where you're going to be reporting to editors again. You know, even if you're promising them um, some kind of, uh, you know, a lot of editorial freedom, there's still going to be a suspicion of why am I going to leave what I have that's working so well on top of which, you know, people we were talking to who were supported, but were potential investors kind of saw the wind shifting as well and realized 
the people, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, when I was at the intercept every year since its founding, I was by far the most well read uh, writer. My articles generated the most traffic of anyone by far each year. And yet the minute that I went to Substack, my articles starting being read by two times more and then three, now four and five times more people than were reading it at the intercept. Why? Because and I, I've talked to other people at Substack, people on Rumble as compared to YouTube, and they all say the same thing because people no longer trust journalists or writers who they perceive as being constrained in any way by unseen forces behind them. They only trust independent writers, independent journalists, and, and are willing to read them a lot more. You reach a lot more people when you're independent. So what we were trying to build kind of arose organically and in a way that that was more powerful. That said, there definitely are some plans um, in terms of uh, some things that I'm very excited by that we're going to be announcing soon that I can't talk about that are kind of more traditional ways to bring together networks of independent voices. Um, I think there's going to be things happening on this app along those lines. I think there's going to be things happening on the other independent ones um, as well. As far as the attempt to kind of undermine the duopoly with things like Andrew Yang's third party, I think those are very well intentioned. I think they are reflective of the same dissatisfaction that is driving a lot of what we're talking about. The problem is the two-party system is so fortified and entrenched and both parties have such a united interest in maintaining it that it's extremely difficult to undermine that. I've always thought the only way a viable third party run could happen is if it were funded by a billionaire. I'm not sure that that's particularly encouraging. Um, I think there's maybe some efforts underway to transform the two parties kind of by doing an insurgency from within. If you look at the Republican Party now, it's a much, much different uh, entity, for better or worse, than it was 10 and 12 years ago. Remember, in 2016, everybody was positive that Jeb Bush was going to win because he had every establishment check uh, of a box, including all this right funding, all the right party establishment, Marco Rubio, the same thing. Trump came, obliterated them all, and, and rewrote the rules, and in doing so, imported into that party a wide range of values it didn't previously have, from skepticism about the CIA to promises to not intervene in wars and do regime change operations, talking openly about the corrupting effects of lobbyists and uh, large corporations and the way in which they're running roughshod over American life. So I think transforming the parties might be more optimistic, though I wish people luck who are trying to kind of undermine the duopoly um, as well. I was just on a panel with Andrew Yang at a Bitcoin conference um, and had an opportunity to speak to him for the first time in an in-depth way. And, you know, like I said, I think he's very well-intentioned. Um, but I think there's so many obstacles, systemic obstacles arrayed against anybody who tries that, um, that until I see more evidence of its success, I'm going to be pretty skeptical of, of, of that possibility, even as I root for it. Um, Next up is Rodrigo. Go ahead. Hey, Glenn, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I guess following up on that uh, topic you were talking about, um, uh, I'm somebody that's never voted for like a Republican in my life, but um, I think seeing what's been coming up lately, like with the what you were talking about, the uh, disinformations are, um, 
what I wanted to ask is that so far, I feel like the only opposition to this kind of a new type of censorship um, has only come from the Republicans, like people like Ron DeSantis, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Boebert. Uh, so what I wanted to ask is, do you think that uh, uh, these kind of Republicans are are genuine in their opposition or, or do you think that um, they're just writing the political headwinds so that when they get into power, they might take advantage of this office and use it for their own political gains. Do you think they are actually trustworthy in their opposition? You know, it's a great question. Um, one of the things I decided quite a while ago is that there's no way to discern the motives of politicians. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter in the sense that whoever is willing to work with you at any given moment in pursuit of a cause you believe in becomes your situational allies. Um, you know, I'll tell you a quick story, which was uh, when I first started writing about politics, it was in the second term of the Bush-Cheney administration. I was principally motivated by opposition to the war on terror and specifically the civil liberties abuses ushered in in the name of what back then was the scary threat we were all supposed to be so afraid of that we were willing to give up all our rights in order to be safe from, which was Al-Qaeda and foreign uh, Islamic radicalism and the like. And my allies obviously were Democrats because I was inveighing against George Bush and Dick Cheney all the time. And th those civil liberties uh, issues were a major cause for Democrats. And that's why I was able to develop a very big platform very quickly, despite not being known within the world of politics and journalism, was because Democrats and liberals and the like, the left, migrated to my to my column because I was writing about things that they said they cared a lot about. And when George Bush, uh, when Barack Obama ran for president in 2007, you know, he highlighted the fact that he was a constitutional law professor, that the constitution was sacred to him, that he would, you know, he would vow to, he was vowing to undo all of the executive power abuses of George Bush and Dick Cheney and restore due process and all, and the like. And I remember I went to, I spoke at some libertarian conference in 2008 during the campaign uh, and someone in the audience stood up, a libertarian, and said, he was old, he was older, uh, you know, I think in his 60s, at the time I was 37, he said, you know, I, I really like your writing, but I think you're very naive. Um, you're going to see that if the Democrats win, which they probably will, they're going to immediately do a 180. And they're going to embrace with great vigor all the powers that they're now claiming they want to uh, uproot because that's always how it works. And I said, look, I'm not naive about human nature. I don't see the Democrats through rose colored glasses. But if they were to do that after making so much noise for so many years about their antipathy toward Guantanamo and CIA black sites and Bagram and all of that, detaining people without due process, rendition. If they were to just embrace that, the hypocrisy would be so naked and transparent that I don't think they could get away with it politically. And he just kind of smirked and said, I guess we'll see who's right. And of course, Obama won and he took office in January of 2009. And you can go Google this in February of 2009, February 2009, a month into his presidency, there was an article in the New York Times by Charlie Savage, who had been covering 
the war on terror, civil liberties issues, first for the Boston Globe and, and then for the Times, that the headline of which was something like, Obama surprises allies and judges by defending most Bush-Cheney war on terror policies. And the story of the Obama administration was that he ended up not just embracing, but expanding most of the same policies that he became president by vowing to uproot because he, didn't want, he thought the power in his hand was noble and safe. It was only when it was in George Bush and Dick Cheney and the evil Republicans' hands when it was something to worry about. So do I think that the Republicans might get into office and suddenly love the power to decree disinformation and censor? Maybe. But at the same time, let's remember, the Republicans were in power from 2016 to 2020. And at least in terms of the rhetoric of Donald Trump, and to me this was the most significant and valuable part of his presidency, he didn't start praising the CIA and the Pentagon and war making um, because now he was in charge. He prided himself on being the first president not to involve the United States in a new war in decades. He stuck to his view of the deep state as this pernicious force in American life all the way up until the end. Was that a genuine conviction? Did it come from grievance and resentment over his correct perception that they were trying to sabotage his presidency? I don't really know. I don't think, I think we have a hard enough time knowing our own motives, let alone other people's. But ultimately, in the, at the end of the day, I consider it positive. If the Republicans do a 180 because they get into power and start endorsing these things, I will invade against them exactly as I'm now invading against Democrats. But I think that the Democrats have become so inculcated and conditioned to believe that these powers are, are necessary and are rightfully theirs that I don't care what other policies they claim to advocate on the economic front or the cultural front or the foreign policy front, any political movement that believes in censorship, that believes in disinformation czars, that wants to cheer for their own disinformation campaigns right before an election is a political movement that is odious. And for the moment, there, isn't, there aren't very many spaces where you can go to object and dissent from those things. You, if you want to go dissent from the Biden administration policy in Ukraine, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram show are the only places you can do it. So that's where I'm going to go. If you want to find people who are angry about big tech censorship, you have to go to the right wing of the Republican Party. And so that's where I'm going to go. Matt Taibbi talks about this a lot. You know, the reason why we who have always been perceived as left-wing journalists find ourselves in an alliance with people who are on the right isn't because we've changed our views on anything. It's because the Democrats have become the leading agitators and advocates of the very policies that all of us have for many, many years had at the top of our list as the most dangerous. And so rather than changing what we believe in order to stay aligned with the left or the Democratic Party, we continue to embrace the principles that we have and we just find ourselves in an alliance with different people, not because we've changed, but because they have. All right, um, next up is Anthony. Go ahead, Anthony, um, unmute yourself and we should be able to hear you. Hey, what's up, Glenn? Yeah, this uh, DHS uh, new agency is pretty crazy. I've been... Uh, 
really against obviously the existence of the DHS since, you know, what, 2003 really, because it's, we all know it, it logically doesn't even make sense. You know, like if we're supposed to protect borders, you know, we have a military to protect from invasion. And if we're supposed to do immigration, I don't know, that seems like a health and human service thing. And, uh, you know, customs, that's that that was in the Treasury Department for 200 years. And now uh, so the the thing of the DHS was it was supposed to combine all these disparate agencies so they could share information better and cooperate better. And now they're saying they need to create this bureau within it to cooperate better and share more information. It's just like, I mean, the logic of it is not. Or I think even uh, some people who vote for the two parties, I think they could be won over to the idea that DHS has got to go. Yeah, you know, it was interesting uh, when, again, when DHS was created, which was 2002, it was at a time when there wasn't a lot of dissent, especially uh, when it came to things justified in the name of national security. It was a very traumatizing moment for the United States, easily the worst attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor, probably worse. So when the government said, we need to do this to keep you safe, most people nodded. But even in that climate, there was a lot of bipartisan uh, doubt about Homeland Security. You had Republicans who are generally skeptical of creating entirely new government bureaucracies who ask the question you just raised, which is, why do we need this, right? For immigration, we have, um, you know, the Immigration uh, Naturalization Services. We have ICE. We have, you know, we have the CIA for foreign intelligence. We have the FBI for domestic law enforcement. What is it that we're missing? We have the NSA, that spies on everybody. And some of you might remember that Rick Wilson, now the icon of American liberalism, who has enriched himself off gullible liberals with the Lincoln Project, he, the, one of the most notorious political ads run in the last 20 years was produced by him in the Georgia Senate race where he was uh, working for the Republican who won the race, Saxby Chambliss, challenging the Democratic incumbent, Max Cleland, and Max Cleland was somebody who was a soldier in the Vietnam War who lost both legs and an arm. So he left three limbs on a battlefield fighting for his country. And because Max Cleland voted against the creation of the Department of Homeland Security on the grounds that it was an unnecessary bureaucracy and would trample on civil liberties, Rick Wilson morphed his face into Osama bin Laden, basically implying strongly that he wasn't a patriot, that he was soft on terrorism. So there was a lot of fear about Homeland Security, just like there was about the Patriot Act and what it would ultimately do. And obviously the fears of the Patriot Act not only proved to be valid, but it exceeded our wildest fears about the kind of surveillance it would unleash. And now we're seeing with Homeland Security, obviously if you create an agency and you tell it, its mission is to uh, safeguard the homeland, they're going to constantly find ways to increase their power in the name of doing that to the point where they have now proclaimed and, and, and seized the power to say what is and is not misinformation or disinformation. Um, all right. Next caller is, uh, it's hard to say, but if you can, is it Rena? Um, hello. Rena. Yeah. Rena, go ahead. Rena. Yes. Thanks Glenn. Um, I have a I have a pessimistic thing to say and an optimistic thing to say. All right. The pessimistic thing to say the pessimistic thing to say 
is that PayPal is uh, resuming its censorious ways, including Mint Press News, which is where Lee Camp was going to be having his uh, new show since he's uh, no longer with RT America. And also Consortium News has apparently fallen afoul of uh, PayPal. And among others, uh, John Kiriakou hangs out there. So that's depressing. And I don't know if you remember this, Glenn, but I do very distinctly. When I hadn't been following you very long, when you were still with Salon, um, you had written about uh, WikiLeaks and uh, shared a link where people could contribute to WikiLeaks and got a lot of blowback from people who said, I can't contribute to them because that's too scary. I'm afraid the government will come after me. And we have since seen, of course, uh, that was the first attack, I would say, on WikiLeaks was on their financing. And then the governments, the governments and their uh, their minions or I don't know, the oligarchs and their minions, the government, whichever whichever the hell way it's working, uh, have really have really started attacking people who make contributions to ooh, scary things like the truckers convoy in Canada and stuff. So so that okay, that's that's my depressing thing. In in terms of my uh encouraging thing, um Michael Tracy retweeted something from Congress critter Jason Crow of Colorado, who claims to be a Democrat. He's an ex-Army Ranger, and he tweeted something out today, in fact, within the last hour and a half, about how we have to we have to stand strong and resolve ourselves for victory in Ukraine. And he even included a picture. It's hard to hard to see on a phone, but it appears to be a picture of Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff at their uh, surprise visit to Kiev. And it says Ukraine, Y-O-U, Crane. And uh, he's getting ratioed very severely. Uh, the the com I had to retweet it because the comments were exceptional. So maybe people are starting to uh, figure out that the bullshit is the bullshit, and that's all we can hope for. Thanks very much, Glenn. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, you bring up an, an important point, um, which sometimes I forget, you know, just having been somebody who writes every day, um, you can kind of get lost in, in the weeds and sometimes, you know, to invoke that cliche, kind of miss the forest from the trees. Um, a lot of this is, is, is not new at all. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you raised, uh, the, the two issues of both WikiLeaks and PayPal's increasing, uh, denial of, of the ability of, of news outlets to participate. Um, that, first of all, that early WikiLeaks experience was kind of transformative to me. I remember the first time I wrote about WikiLeaks, I interviewed Julian Assange. It was, you know, before... They even did their big uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war logs releases. Um, and I did encourage people to go donate, saying that they were sitting on big leaks but needed financial help in order to process them. And so many people told me in different ways in the comment section of that article, 
by email at events at which I appeared. You know, they said, look, I found your article persuasive. I think WikiLeaks is a very positive uh, development that can bring transparency. I would like to donate, but I'm worried that if I do, I'm going to end up on some, some government list. And the reason that was so transformative to me was because WikiLeaks is an organization still, and certainly at that time, that has never been charged with, let alone convicted of any crime. And the ability to donate money to organizations whose cause you support politically is a core civil liberty. It's guaranteed in the First Amendment, the, the, the ability to organize, to assemble, to, uh, to associate. These are all recognized rights that emanate from the First Amendment. And the fact that so many people were that afraid, I'm, you know, I don't mean like just conspiratorial kind of crazy people that you can recognize immediately. I mean like rational, sober people who were genuinely afraid to exercise their political rights because they thought they would end up on some tracking list somewhere. And that if WikiLeaks in the future became a declared terrorist organization, they could be accused of aiding and abetting a terrorist organization by virtue of having donated. At the time, I kind of thought they were paranoid. And the fact that that fear was so widespread was significant to me because it signaled the climate of intimidation that had been successfully been created. You know, obviously you can guarantee rights on a piece of parchment, but if those rights are rights that people are afraid to exercise because of the punishment they'll endure if they do, those are illusory rights. So it was striking to me and important to me as an experience to see how pervasive that fear was, but I thought that fear was unwarranted. Now I realize those people were prescient because one of the things you saw, obviously in Canada, and it kind of got run over in terms of memory by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was the seizure of assets with no due process by the Trudeau government of people associated with a protest, a peaceful protest that the government disliked. About a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which once was a respected kind of apolitical organization devoted to combating anti-Semitism in favor of civil liberties, but now has become just a standard Democratic Party liberal activist group, announced a partnership with PayPal where PayPal would rely upon the designation by the ADL of whatever sites or groups the ADL accused of being extremist or engaged in disinformation and PayPal would therefore terminate their services. Mint Press and uh, Consortium News and others that have been booted off PayPal are sites that have a politics that would be anathema to the ADL. So it ties into this original story with Homeland Security. If you have the power to label people agents of disinformation or engage in hate speech or any other kind of extremism, you can have them removed from the financial services industry. That was done to WikiLeaks back in 2010. The U.S. government pressured MasterCard and Visa, the Bank of America, Amazon, to terminate any connection that it had to WikiLeaks. And we created the Freedom of the Press Foundation, myself and Daniel Ellsberg, or Poitras, as a response to that. They were unable to raise money because PayPal... MasterCard, Visa, Bank of America all announced in response to that pressure that they would no longer allow people to donate to WikiLeaks. And we created the Freedom of the Press Foundation to collect WikiLeaks' donations for them and circumvent the blockade. So this attempt to create the system where if you're accused of spreading disinformation or you're accused of being a dangerous dissident, you can be punished with no due process, with extrajudicial means, you can be deplatformed, has been a long time in the making. Um, and 
you know, I think that it's really important to note that because although we're seeing it now um, kind of take its, its highest, you know, expression, it stands to reason that there's a lot more of it to come. Um, and so, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why I find it so disturbing and, and, and you kind of reminded me of, of some of those early experiences is I've been seeing this and writing about it and warning about it for a long time. And it feels like it just continues to um, escalate. All right. Uh, next caller is, I have time for a couple more. Um, is it AO? Yeah. AQ. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. I can hear you. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree with a lot of what you said. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, unfortunate. I feel like under Biden, you have the capital six, you know, so-called riots, the trucker convoys, the anti-mandate rallies, et cetera. They're all branded treasonous or manufactured disinformation. Under Trump, you have the BLM riots, you know, so-called riots, the leaks from the Trump White House. Every, everything is branded as disinformation or treasonous. Mutatis mutandis. Obama with Snowden or the Tea Party or Bush with the Iraq war. So it just seems to me like this is just a ping pong game between those in power and those who aren't. And I'm wondering, I mean, the GOP, which is kind of resurgent right now, they released an agenda by Rick Scott that labels socialism as an enemy combatant, says we need to renew the obscenity laws and all this. So that to me is a clear indicator that this is just, uh, you know, going to do a 180, as you said. And we know that, you know, government agencies, especially related to the deep state, like like this new uh, DHS one, they never end up dying. They never end up being abolished. So I'm wondering, I'm worried it will just flip. And my question is, are there any really principled civil libertarians out there? I know the ACLU used to be, but now it's out to lunch with Joe Biden. I, so maybe we should have a you know litmus test for candidates. I don't know. I don't see... Uh, principled people who are, regardless of political affiliation, uh, defending people's First Amendment and Fourth Amendment, for that matter, rights. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I first started writing about politics, 2005, 2006, I got immediately labeled a leftist because I was writing critically of George Bush and, and Dick Cheney, and that was sort of the ethos that prevailed at the time. I guess it still is. And it always surprised me because... I was writing in defense of values I did not regard as left-wing values. I was invoking precepts of due process, um, privacy. You know, I was very concerned about government spying. And it surprised me that Republicans who had long proclaimed to be the party of limited government, limited federal government powers, that during the 90s, when the Oklahoma City terrorist attack happened in the Clinton administration, And the Clinton administration used that fear over domestic terrorists like Timothy McVeigh and Time Magazine was putting on its cover every week scary articles about weekend white supremacist militias. They tried to use that to gin up fear to enact a law requiring that encryption, which was a new internet technology, have a back door to allow the government to monitor the entire internet in the name of stopping these attacks. It was the Republicans who stopped it on privacy grounds. And so it always surprised me that 9-11 just kind of instantly zapped away on the right, not all the right, but most of it, any concerns over these issues. And so I, the tactic I would always try, the persuasive tactic was, look, you trust George Bush and Dick Cheney. You think George Bush is a good patriot and, you know, stalwart 
defender of the United States or whatever. So you're satisfied with him having these powers. But what about Hillary Clinton, you know, or whoever the next Democratic president is? Do you think they should have the power to imprison people without charges, which is a power that the United States government in the first term of Bush and Cheney had actually exercised? They arrested an American citizen on U.S. soil at Chicago International at Chicago Airport declared him an enemy combatant, put him in a brig in South Carolina, accusing him of being the dirty bomber. His name was Jose Padilla and didn't give him a trial until 2006. And only then because the Supreme Court was about to rule that he was entitled to one. And so my argument always was, you know, what you just said, which is, and, and, I, and I've seen, you know, some people asking Democrats now, would you be comfortable with a Department of Homeland Security that has the power to declare disinformation under a new Trump administration. And for some reason, this argument just doesn't work because people are focused on short-term power gains. And while abstractly, they may, you know, be bothered by that. I think their attitude is, I'll worry about that then if, if, if it comes to that. And the partisan obsession at the expense of any consistent principle that transcends partisanship has long been what I one of the things that I consider to be the worst plagues on American discourse. Like I said, I do think Trump unintentionally, unwittingly, or, or for with whatever other motives, broke some of that matrix. And the distrust that he sowed among traditional Republican voters who long vested trust in the name of patriotism in these agencies is, in my view, going to endure for a good while. And I'd be very surprised seeing a kind of reconstituted Republican party that suddenly loves the CIA and the FBI and the war making machine again, because Ron DeSantis is now in charge of it. But again, I thought that about Democrats once Bush was gone and I, I was proven wrong. So I try not to predict the future. I try and kind of construct coalitions based on whoever is a good ally at the moment um, and hope that, you know, to appeal to what I do think is people's capacity to reason, which in turn requires an embrace of first principles in order to arrive at some destination independent of considerations of power. Um, it's just something I believe that people have the capacity to do. And I guess I wouldn't be doing what I was doing unless I believed in that. All right, let me take the last caller. Um, I have trouble seeing these names. Uh, I'm going to blame it on the platform instead of my aging eyes. Nima, go ahead. Yeah. Hi, Glenn. Uh, it's a Hello. pleasure to speak with you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, great. Um, first of all, it's an honor uh, to speak with you. You are my favorite journalist. I've listened to you for years. I always uh, trust whatever, you know, your perspective, because I think you're you're genuine and you're always on point and you're thank you obviously. very much yeah you're very you're very smart no obviously that's obvious um i just wanted to ask you about uh prospects about the future about americans believing uh future elections because you know we had i and obviously i'm very generally very liberal on most issues uh, i supported Bernie sanders in 2020 and 2016 i feel like the democrats screwed him both times um and prevented him from winning both times. I thought, especially in 2020, uh, if uh, if they were if it was a fair primary, he won the first three primaries, and somehow didn't become the nominee. Uh, it was quite disappointing, and obviously, I was more disappointed in Bernie because he uh, 
he just basically surrendered after that. And then for two years, he's just been, he's, he's basically abandoned his, the people who supported him. Um, and so that's been disappointing. Um, given my doubts about the validity of the results in the 2020 primary and general election, what do you think the prospects are for the future for Americans believing results, um, especially and conducting elections, at least the American government con con conducting elections in a timely and quick manner so that people believe the results. Like, for instance, um, the UK and France, they are pretty, they're pretty efficient when it comes to announcing the results and the winners, and there's no doubt. I mean, or certainly a lot less doubt on who's won and who's lost, especially if it's, you know, relatively close. Um, so my question is, I mean, I, there's cause to be a little optimistic or not. I mean, I generally am pessimistic, but um, it just seems like, uh, I mean, you, you know, if you don't, if you don't believe the results, it's hard to think you live in a democracy. So, um, uh, you know, I guess I just want to get your thoughts on prospects for the future. And it's difficult to know for sure, because we don't, we, there's a 2022 elections coming up and then there's 2024. Um, and obviously it seems like there's a red wave that's going to come, but, uh, but, you know, who knows, but. Uh, I'm not certainly not a Republican, but I'm not a Democrat either. I'm independent, uh, but left, generally speaking. I, you know, I see eye to eye when it comes to, you know, I'm anti-censorship, and you know, I believe in Medicare for all. You know, I believe in equal rights, equal pay, all that. You know, generally left issues. But you know, I don't feel optimistic about the future. And if you don't believe election results, it's hard to know that. You know, hard to feel like you're living in a democracy. Especially, uh, you know, I thought I thought we we are in a democracy, but it seems like it's getting more. It's very, um, uh, it's very. Uh, how do you say? It's not. It seems like it's not as strong as before. It's more vulnerable now. Um, at least, at least American democracy. And uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on all this. Thank you. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff in in the questions you asked and the issues you raised. I was actually thinking today in response to both the Homeland Security disinformation issue, but also Nancy Pelosi's visit to Ukraine with Adam Schiff and the announcement this week that Biden wants $33 billion for Ukraine on top of the billions that have already been sent there. Like, where is the, the left in any of this? There's, there's like, absent. You know, they just like checked out of any of these debates. And when I say the left, I don't mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi. It's interesting. A lot of time people on the left have trouble understanding that there's really differing factions on the right. And they kind of group everybody into the right. And a lot of conservatives think the left means, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi when, you know, it doesn't for me and people who have spent time on the left. It means, let's say the only two viable representatives of what you might call the left. It wouldn't be the left in most countries, but in the United States, it's what passes for the left, Bernie Sanders and AOC. You know what I think? You know, where are they? Where are they in, in terms of uh, questioning the increasing U.S. role in a very dangerous war in Ukraine about why we're getting involved in another protracted war, but sending $33 billion at the time when uh, everyone says we don't have enough money or any money to do any of the left's uh, prioritized social spending, whether it's free college or Medicare for all or anything else. Like, where are they? 
Where are they objecting to Homeland Security? They're gone. And I think right. one of the things that happened is in 2016, they were promised a political revolution by Bernie Sanders. That's what he called it, a political revolution. And he made very clear, very clear, that he was not running against the Republicans the way every other Democrat was, but was running against both parties. It was a war at least as much on what he called the Democratic establishment as on what he called the Republican establishment. And it, you know, nobody took that seriously. And it turned into a very formidable political force with huge numbers, millions of, of not just young people, but nonpartisan independent people. I remember stories from that campaign about people I knew who were journalists going to union halls in rural America. And they would say, who are your two favorite candidates? Who do you, who are going to vote for? And people would say either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders strength was that he wasn't a Democrat. That's what enabled him to challenge the omnipotent Clinton political machine. And two things happened. Number one, the Democratic Party cheated to make sure Hillary Clinton won. And when I say they cheated, remember, people like Donna Brazil and Elizabeth Warren have said this. They didn't just put their finger on the scale to favor Hillary, which is cheating, the DNC. That's what Elizabeth Warren and Donna Brazil said. They cheated in the vote counting, in the vote process. You know, there were all kinds of like, bizarre and still unexplained episodes where huge numbers of people in Bernie pro Bernie uh, areas were disenfranchised. They had that vote voice vote in the Nevada caucus, which clearly went in one direction and they just declared it in the other to help Hillary. There was fraud continuously, continuously throughout the 2016 democratic primary. And I think Hillary would have lost and Bernie would have won had that not happened in 2020. When Bernie dropped out, he suddenly became the most loyal Democrat, as did AOC, taking all these people who had been promised a political revolution and telling them instead that their solemn obligation was to devote themselves with great loyalty to the Democratic Party in the name of stopping fascism and white supremacy or whatever. And suddenly they all sounded like, you know, Amy Klobuchar um, and every other standard Democrat. And so they've been spun around, the left has, by this like carousel of promises and commitments, none of which were kept by the correct perception that the Democratic Party cheated them. And then ultimately by the decree from the leaders they trusted to go and devote their loyalty to the very institution they had heard for five years was corrupt and that they thought they were fighting against. And so they're just lost. They're just broken. They have no compass. They have no leaders. They have no purpose. They've just like blended into the Democratic Party. So that's one of the problems is the opposition comes from the right because the left is just, they're uprooted. They have no idea who or what they are. The other issue is, you know, you mentioned other countries that count votes correctly. I've written twice about this. I live in Brazil, as most of you know. Brazil is a a country with the population comparable to the United States. It's the fifth most or sixth most populous country in the world that has 230 million people, so maybe 80 million less than the United States. But in terms of the election, a, a, a comparable number of people show up for national elections, in part because voting is mandatory. Uh, people, The voting age is 16, not 18. They, Brazil holds elections on a Sunday to make sure that nobody's impeded from voting 
because of work. So as many Brazilians show up to the polls to vote, if not more than Americans do. What happens is the election, and it's gonna, there's going to be a presidential election in October this year when Bolsonaro won in, in 2018 the same way. The polls open at 7 or 8 in the morning on a Sunday. They close at 6 or 7 at night. By 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock that night, every vote is counted and the full accurate count is released. And nobody questions it. Nobody has doubts. Bolsonaro is now trying to sow some doubts about fraud, but most Brazilians trust the, the vote counting process. This is a country that is infinitely poorer than, than the United States, where nothing is, is well organized. I always joke that Brazil is sort of the anti-Germany. In Germany, everything is incredibly efficient and organized. In Brazil, nothing is. To me, that's the charm. But it means that they shouldn't be able to count votes quickly, and yet they do. And yet, in the United States, the most technologically advanced and richest country in the planet, when California goes and has a primary for president in, you know, April, the full final vote tally isn't available until August. It takes three months to count the votes. Even in presidential elections, where the race isn't as close as 2020, the full accurate count isn't available for weeks. Obviously, if you have the ability to count votes... It's ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, and and look, there's differences, right? So one of the problems in the U.S. is each state is responsible for counting votes. They all have different rules, but so what? You know, whereas Brazil's nationalized, France and, and the U.K. are nationalized, but so what? It's the richest country in the world, the most technologically advanced country in the world. The only way that the United States can't count votes quickly and accurately is if they don't want to. And of course, that's going to sow seeds of doubt when you're told, you know, on 11 o'clock or one in the morning on election night that one candidate is winning. And then eight days later, the other candidate is declared the winner. Of course, that's going to sow doubts in people's minds about whether there's fraud and whether the democratic system can be trusted. So I think you're absolutely right. It seems like such a simple issue. Um, But I think one of the reasons people are so disenchanted and so distrusting of the democratic process is because at the very least, it seems like a pretty intense contempt for the population not to fix that problem. All right. Um, So we've gone um, almost two hours, about an uh, hour and 45 minutes. Um, I tried to get through as many calls as I could. I got through half the queue. It was a long queue, which I really appreciate. Um, I, Really love doing this show. Um, I'm going to very shortly announce the regular date and time. It won't be Sunday. As I said, it'll be during the week at a more kind of standard time that will enable more people to come. Um, But please continue to come back. I really appreciate everybody in the queue. If I didn't get to you, I apologize. Keep coming back and I will try and leave more time Um, as always. Thank you to everybody who asked questions and everybody who attended and participated. I really enjoy being able to kind of interact with people and, and have a conversation instead of a monologue about the stuff I'm writing about. So thanks so much. Hope you'll keep coming back and I hope you have a great evening and a great week as well. Good night, everybody.